0: Good morning. Well, we're getting... Hey, good morning. morning. I know it's early. I know it's early. It's 1143 uh, for some of you, Uh, but I'm excited. I'm thrilled what a joy it is to be part of this amazing church, and I know some are joining us online and catching it afterwards uh, as well, but uh, not only is it a new year, but we're actually... We've started a new sermon series. In fact, we started it last week. And we're exploring in very practical ways, what does it mean to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone? We've been talking over the last few months about that is our call. That is our mission for us as a church. On our 60-year anniversary as a church, that's what we are called to do today. But how do we do that? What does it look like beyond just, just words? Well, we've gone straight to the source. We want to listen from Jesus. Over the next few weeks, in total, we'll do six of these some of the most famous teachings from Jesus, the most well-known parables. Now you'll be familiar if you've grown up in church or been around the church long enough to hear some of these. And the problem, though, is—and I said it last week—the problem is we've had these parables with us perhaps for too long, because they've become too familiar, and therefore when we begin to read them or hear them taught or read about them in a book, we oh. oh, oh yeah. I got it. I, I get this. I know the point. I've know. i I've got it. I know the three points. I, I know what you're going to say. And so we check out. But the truth is, when Jesus first shared these stories, they were shocking. They absolutely upended what everybody thought a good life should be, in fact, so much so that they wanted to kill Jesus, that they couldn't stand what He was saying. But actually, the people that thought they had it all together were the ones who felt the most exposed. And ironically, the mo- those that, that felt absolutely in shambles, they found hope for the first time in their life. Last week, if you were here, and if you missed it, you can go on our website or go on iTunes to get caught up as we start this new series. Uh, but I shared that very different than what we typically think, Jesus was not painting a picture of a good person versus a bad person. Last week we talked about how He was talking about two different types of people that outwardly they do the same things. They go to church, they pray, they give, but under the surface they had completely different motivations. And I said that they're both good people, but under the surface, because it's so different, it changed everything, because under the surface is what matters. But differently today, Jesus lifts up two different types of people. And this one, unlike last week, is about a good person. Everybody would look at it and say, that's that's a good person. They've got it figured out. They're a good husband. They're a good leader. They're a good citizen. He compares that with a bad person, somebody that people look at and say, oh, they're a wreck. What a mess. How selfish. And they both pray a prayer. And Jesus shocks everybody because He lifts up one prayer over the other. But again, we've got to hear it with new ears, with new eyes in this century just to be reminded of how shocking it was. So, to help with that, we've asked the Bell Drama Department to, to, as it were, go into this story that Jesus told from a modern-day perspective. So, take a listen to this.
1: There once was a man who was, at the same time, loved, hated, and envied, and a woman who was unilaterally reviled by everyone. The man was a Christian radio talk show host, while the woman was an auditor for the IRS.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you know I'm not one to brag. My millions of listeners polish my ego more than any man has the right, but sometimes I may even myself. Guess who I've got on the line right now? A true oxymoron a contrite IRS agent. This I've got to hear. Go ahead, caller.
1: Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I guess I'm calling to apologize.
2: Well, now I've heard everything. I missed the weather report, but there must be a blizzard in Hades. Are you just apologizing, or are you also going to give refunds to the thousands of innocent Americans you ripped off?
1: I take full responsibility. I take full responsibility for all of my actions. But you have to understand, we're under orders to find discrepancies or we lose our
2: jobs. Oh, well, let me be the first to give you a big boo-hoo about that. God, I just want to take a moment right now to stop and thank you that I'm not like this woman. I give you more than 10% of my very substantial income and by that we both know I mean 10% of the gross. And you have blessed me abundantly for it, amen.
1: And then the talk show host proceeded to tell the IRS agent of all the awards that had recently been showered upon him because of his endless generosity and humility.
2: Now, are any of those awards going to raise the red flag with you and your bootsteppers?
1: I don't know how they could.
2: I also fast twice a week. Are you going to hit me up on a non-consumption tax?
1: I I called up to tell you how my life has been changed. I couldn't live with the guilt, so I quit my job last week.
2: Oh, well, thank you for small favors. A day late and a few billion dollars short, my friend. Is that supposed to make me and my listeners feel better about ourselves? Since we're not scumbags like you and all the other thieves and adulterers out there?
1: Maybe calling you was a mistake. I, I, I guess I was looking for a way to make things right.
2: I'm sorry, we're fresh out of mercy and atonement for robber barons who prey on honest citizens, my friend. Maybe before asking for forgiveness, you should think about paying back everyone whose lives you've ruined.
1: I know you won't believe this, but that's exactly what I'm planning on doing.
2: Oh, and if you listeners swallow that, I've got some swamp land I'd like to sell you.
1: And so the IRS agent hung up and spent the rest of her life living in response to the forgiveness she knew she didn't deserve, while the Christian talk show host spent the rest of his days wallowing in self-aggrandizement. The end.
0: Now, if you're new to Bel Air, you might say, wait a second, this was a Christian church I walked into and... They had one of the characters as a Christian radio talk show host. Where's this going to go? Well, let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, let's hear how Jesus told the story. Open them up. They're in the pew rack in front of you. If you're online, we're in the New Revised Standard Version. We're going to Luke 18. It's in the New Testament. There were four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four different lenses all in the same life provide a, a deeper, richer, in a sense, in HD or for those of you, a 4K uh, experience on the the clarity of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so, as we go to Luke 18, we're going to see in verses 10 through 14 the parable. Afterwards, I'm going to read verse 9, which is the reason why Jesus shared this teaching. But I want to set it up right from the get-go that the first century hearers would very quickly know that there is a good guy and a bad guy. That walk into this temple to pray. Listen to this. This is verse 10. This is Jesus speaking of Luke 18 on page 853 in your Pew Bibles. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. So, before we get into this text, uh, I want to remind you, if you were here last week, that I ended the sermon with three different questions. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I'm going to put them up on the screen in fact in a moment. And in this series, we're going to… in many ways, I want to give you the opportunity to have a firsthand… a firsthand encounter with God, a personal relationship. So while I'm preaching, while we're together, I hope that you would actually be praying to God. God, what do you want me to learn from this, that you would be praying to God? You don't need me to pray to God. I don't need to be your mediator. You can go direct to Him while I'm talking. You can go right to Him. You can pray, God, who do you want me to be in light of this? And then finally, would you… you don't need me again to go directly to God. You have access to God through Jesus Christ. Would you, would you pray that for God? What do you want me to do in response to this? I want to leave that on the screen for a moment. One of the greatest problems I see in North America, in the Western church, is that we settle for a second-hand faith. We rely on our pastors and our teachers and those great Christian authors and Bible study leaders and small group leaders and our mentors and other people for their faith, and we're, are, we're not willing to do the hard work of exposing our lives to God and saying, God, what do you want from me? Yeah. How do you want me to change? What can I do for you? And so often we kind of, oh, that's great pastor, that's great worship leader, oh, have you listened to that? You know, and we, we, we distance ourselves, we, we outsource, because we outsource everything else in life, we outsource our faith to our church. And when I say church, I'm not talking about the biblical idea of churches and we are the church. We outsource it to the leaders, to the elders, the pastors, the deacons, and the staff. So, by giving you these questions before the sermon, what I'm doing is I'm trying to get myself out of the way. When it comes to relationship with God, you don't need me. Do you understand that? All you need is faith in Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the sermon, I'm not going to tell you, okay, this is what I wanted you to learn, this is who I want you to be, this is what I want you to do, because that's going to fall infinitely short from what the God of the universe who knows you intimately and perfectly will say to you if you actually open up your heart and pray to Him, God, what do you want me to learn? Who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? Does that sound good? I'm doing the same thing as I'm preaching this. God, who do you want me to be? What do you want me to learn? What what do you want me to do? So let's dive into this text. This is Luke 18. I said earlier that we have a good man and a bad man. And we need to understand that both of them are looking for the same thing. And actually, it's perhaps the greatest need that we have as human beings. After food and and, and water and, and oxygen, shelter. The greatest need that they're looking for, that all of us, no matter where you've grown up, No matter what your background is, no matter what you believe about God, every single human being that walks on this earth, that ever takes a breath, that ever grows up here, we all have the same need. And it's a need to be righteous. And 99% of you didn't think I was going to go there. And many of you immediately, you're like, what? Oh, I'm checked out. Well, hold on. You see, at the very core of the meaning of the word righteous is a word that is very different than what we think of the word righteous. You know, we've, over the years, we've turned the word righteous into a negative thing. Oh, they're so righteous. Oh, so self-righteous. So, we don't want that. But in the Hebrew language, which is the language of the Old Testament, and in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, from cover to cover in Scripture, the word righteousness literally means to be approved to be accepted, to pass the test, to get in, to be enough. You can perhaps still remember what it was like when you got that letter of acceptance from that school. I'm in. You perhaps remember exactly what you were feeling the moment after all those interviews, after all those other candidates that you knew were there that you got the job. Perhaps you know the feeling of after the first date, you got the, the second date phone call. Hey, I had a great time. Can I take you out again? You absolutely know what it is like. Those moments, if you're on social media, you put up that photo, bling, the light goes up, the comments start coming up. One of the greatest things for, uh, for this need that we have is social media on our birthdays. People come out of the world people you don't even know, people that follow you, they don't really hear the happy birthday. (gasps) Me? (laughs) Thank you. And so on and on it goes. And I'm here to say that's not a bad thing that we have this need. Because this need actually says that we have been created in the image of God. And if you look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, in the beginning of Scripture, there's this very clear picture of how God originally intended all things to be. And God originally intended for every single one of us to be absolutely certain that we've been approved, that we've been accepted, that we are enough in the eyes of the one whom it matters the most, God, our Creator. The problem is, as we continue in the story of Scripture in Genesis 3, we chose to be our own lords. We wanted to have control. We wanted to be our own saviors. And the problem was one of the the results of that is we became uncertain of God's approval, of God's acceptance, of God's love. We became uncertain that we were enough. And so Scripture says that we hid from one another, from God, from each other, and we've been living the rest of our lives trying to fill that need. Every culture does it differently. Even throughout society, we approach it differently. Perhaps some of you have been raised in a certain way that if you get this job or if you live in this zip code or if you wear these things or if you have these types of relationships or if you have these types of experiences or if you look this certain way, then you will be accepted. You will be approved. You will be enough. And the crazy thing is is that we take all of that into the church. We bring all of that into our faith. We bring all of that into this community. And so when Jesus tells this story, He's actually speaking to a group of people that were actually trying to fill that need in ways that they thought they were filling that need, but in the end Jesus says, you've absolutely, completely missed it. You see, there's two ways that He reveals that we can fill that need to be approved, to be righteous, to be accepted. To be enough. And the first way is this, the Pharisee, open those Bibles back up, verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself in the Greek language which is the language in the New Testament literally gives the image that he has removed himself from everybody else. And so as he is about to list a long list of external things, he also separates himself from everybody else. And right from the get-go, we see that he is completely focused on his outward behavior. And so, the approach, I'll call it this, he is trying to get that need of approval, of acceptance, by achieving it. And he goes down this list. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves. I don't steal. Rogues, that's swindlers. I'm not an adulterer. I'm a faithful husband, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. You notice, he doesn't pray, I'm becoming more patient. He doesn't say anything about his inward character, becoming more humble, more hospitable. Everything is on the outside. And when you have an achievement or an achieving way of filling that need, you're always focused on the externals. It's all about what you do. I show up to church, I joined a small group, I became a deacon, I serve, I do these things. And if it's always externally focused, then after a while we begin to separate ourselves from other people who externally aren't doing the same things that we are, to show others that we have it all together. And we don't want to be associated with those that we think externally don't have it all together. And even beyond that, if we have this achieving type of fulfilling this need to be approved, we begin to elevate our personal preferences to the level of God's will, of God's law. Take a look at this. He lists all these things. Thank God that I'm not a thief. One of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not steal. Okay, God says that goes on and on. There's, I'm not an adulterer. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Even later on, it says, I give a tenth of all that I have. That's in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that we should give a tenth of all that we have. But then he includes something that isn't mentioned in Scripture. He says, I fast twice a week. Never in Scripture does it say that. Never in God's law does it require us to do that. There's instances where once a year on Yom Kippur, we're called to fast, but twice a week. And so what this person has done in focusing on all the external things that they're doing and separating themselves from other people, they're elevating their personal preferences to the level of God's will for their life. And some of you, you walk in and you say, man, I put my hands up in worship. I'm a real Christian. And some of you, you say, man, I'm so introspective. And so in awe of what God has done, I don't want to show off I'm a real Christian. And some of you are like, man, you know what? I'm casual when it comes to church because that's, that's how we should be. I love wearing flip-flops. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to worry about what you're going to wear. The tie, the pastor's wearing a tie. He's not casual in you. Or some of you, you got the three-piece suit on. You're like, what's this guy doing? He's got a sweater. Where's, where's his coat? What are these people doing around here? And so on and on it goes and we begin to elevate our personal preferences, oh, you go to the 901, (laughs) oh, you volunteer with the student ministries, you're one of those people, okay, oh. Oh, oh, you you go to the the 6 p.m. service? Isn't that the service where they actually get up and come forward and put the offering in the baskets? You need to be seen, I guess, in your giving. Is that what it is? No one's laughing right now because we do this, don't we? We elevate our personal preferences, sadly. If we think that to be approved means that we achieve it, that we do these things in order to earn God's love, in order to earn... God's approval in order to earn God's acceptance. But the problem is, at the very end of this story, Jesus looks at that way of the achieving way. This person who walked in high and mighty, exalted, and He actually wants them to be humbled. And it reveals to us that this person, though on the outside was a great citizen, a great leader, a great husband, a good person. Don't read that this Pharisee is a hypocrite. Other places in Scripture it talks about a Pharisee being a hypocrite. You can't assume from this text here there's nothing about this that says that this man is a hypocrite. He's done everything. It seems like on the outside he's a good person, but he is just as lost as the person that wants nothing to do with God, who's blowing their life, who is an absolute wreck. That's another amazing thing in what, what scripture reveals to us is that there's actually there's two ways to be lost. There's two ways to, to get God off our back. One is so explicit, and the other way it's hard to see. The way that's easy to see is that people who live for themselves, they're with whomever they want, doing whatever they want, however they do it. They they're they absolutely selfish, they don't care for other people. You've got people like that in your life, or maybe you come in here like that, and it's easy for people to look at you or to look at others and say, oh, they want nothing to do with God. They're so lost. That's easy to see. But there's a whole other group of people that are equally as lost. And what's so scary is they don't even know it. They get God off their back. By doing all the right things, not in response to who God is, but they do all the right things in order to have leverage over God. So that at the end of the day, after all those good things that they do, like this Pharisee, they can get up front and say, Well, God owes me. I have achieved acceptance, I have achieved approval, I have achieved righteousness. And that resulting external focus leads to such spiritual blindness. It's so dangerous. It's like carbon monoxide. You don't even see it, but it seeps in your life. It's absolutely deadly. And so Jesus then provides another story, a different person. Who This person, they walk into the room, into the temple to pray, and this is the bad person. This is a tax collector. This is somebody who is a collaborator. They're most likely Jewish by heritage, but they are working for the Roman government, the occupying government. This would be like a Nazi collaborator, In England, this would be a collaborator with ISIS today. They are living their life, swindling people's money, doing all these things, skimming money off the top for themselves. And they walk into the room, a bad person in society. And how do they pray? This is what Jesus says. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off. Now, this is very different than the Pharisee who stood by himself, to remove himself from everybody else, but this simply is that he was standing far off. Most likely in the, in the Greek language here, it gives this perspective that, that he feels not even worthy to be in the presence of the temple, not even worthy to be around other people of faith. And this person prays after looking, not even looking up to heaven. So remorseful are they, saying, God, be merciful to me. And in the Greek, it translates to, Be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, in your translation, most English translations say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But in the Greek, which is the original language, the definite article before the word sinner is the. But many translators have found that it's such an awkward thing. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So they they change it to a sinner. But you need to know that he prays not a sinner among many, Because that's how often I pray, isn't it how you pray? God, forgive me, but at least I'm not like them. God, forgive me, but you kind of know there's other people in your life that are worse off, a sinner among many. But this tax collector just is so focused on their brokenness, says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the word mercy there, be merciful to me, is different than most times the word mercy is found in the Bible. You see, most often it's used, it's a very different word, but this word is a very rare word that he uses when he says, be merciful to me. It's the word hilasterion in the Greek. And it literally means, God, atone for my sins. He's not saying, be merciful, don't give me what I deserve. He's not saying, God, lower your standards, be merciful to me. He acknowledges that the standard is so high that he'll never meet it. He says, God, would you cover for it? Would you pay for it? Would you satisfy it? Now, the crazy thing is in the Old Testament, there was something that happened once a year on Yom Kippur. You heard me mention it earlier. It was the Day of Atonement where the great high priest would go into the temple, into the Most Holy of Holies. This is in the middle of this. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Inside that was the Ten Commandments and it was where they really believed was the, the presence of god was most fully dwelt and experienced. and so the high priest would go on behalf of the people after going through this purification process and after sacrificing a spotless lamb. they would go in and they would take the blood of this spotless lamb and they would wipe it on the hillasterion the mercy seat the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a symbolic reminder that God doesn't lower His standards, but it needs to be paid for. It needs to be covered. It needs to be satisfied. And so, the crazy thing is, much unlike the Pharisee who's trying to achieve it, the Pharisee shows up to this moment and says, God, I need to receive it. I need to receive that approval. I'm never going to be able to achieve it. I'm never going to be able to live up to it. I've got to receive it from someone else or something else, something greater than myself. And the amazing thing is that the writer of Hebrews, another book in the New Testament, literally says this about Jesus. He is our great high priest, and he has provided hilasterion for us. You see, we talk about a lot of things that Jesus does that He paid for our sins. But in addition to that, Scripture says that when He went to the cross after living the perfect life, He did all the things that we can't do. He measured up in every way that we can't measure up. He was approved because of all the things that He'd ever done and who He was more than we will ever be. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and we receive Him by faith, there's this great exchange that happens. He takes away your sin and your brokenness, your bad deeds and your good deeds that are keeping you from God. And He actually gives you His righteousness. It's a free gift. So the amazing thing is that when you receive that by faith, God looks at you despite what you've done. No matter how messed up you've lived your life, no matter how far from God you feel, He looks at you and says, You are approved, you're accepted. You meet the test, you're in. It's like getting into that college and you feel like it's a mistake and you get the entrance letter and you're like, there's no way I got in and it's not a mistake, you're in. It's like getting the job that you feel like you're absolutely unqualified for and it's not a mistake, it's really you, you did get the job. You see, if you realize this, if this sinks down to the core of who you are, it will change everything. There's a story I heard this past week of this young man who grew up in the church. And in his church, he was told that you've got to witness for Jesus. You've got to invite your friends to church. You've got to bring them to church. You've got to do all these things. Got to love you. And the problem was that this young guy was so desperate for his friends' approval that he couldn't do it. Because he was so worried that they were going to say no, that they were going to make fun of him, that they were going to, it was going to be awkward. And so, what he would do is he would be unsure of their acceptance so he wouldn't do it, but then he became unsure of God's acceptance, and it was this downward spiral, and he lived with the shame, he lived with this guilt for all these years, feeling like he wasn't measuring up, he wasn't accepted, he wasn't loved. he wasn't approved, and finally, after many, many years after college, he tried out a new church, and he sat down with the pastor, and he said to the pastor, he says, pastor, for for years I've just walked around with this guilt, I feel like I'm never measuring up, I've never done enough. I've been told that I have to bring my friends to church. I've been told that I have to witness for Him. I've got to share my faith. I've got to do all these things. And this pastor of the new church says, well, whether you do that or not, you need to know that God loves you. And he stops short and he says, well, what do you mean? He says, you don't have to do those things for God to love you. Just whatever you do or don't do in life, just know that God loves you. He adores you. He absolutely is enamored with you. And so after the end of the meeting, that young man leaves the church, and one of the friends calls up the pastor and says, Pastor, what on earth, what did you tell him? All he's doing is sharing his faith with his coworkers. He's inviting people to church. What did you say to him to get him to invite people? And I said… or the the pastor said to him, I told him he didn't have to. And I'm telling you, uh, you don't need me to tell you that you don't have to do these things for God love you. Listen to what Scripture says. It's not your good deeds that causes God to love you. It's not your bad deeds that prevents you from God loving you. You don't have to achieve it. You simply have to receive it. Forgive forgive me for the the cheesy rhyme, but I want you to remember this. The reality is, is that we can only receive the free gift of grace, the free gift of God's love and redemption with empty hands, not holding on to our good deeds, but empty hands saying, God, I need you in my life. Make atonement for my sins. Cover over them. Make the payment. You see, the tax collector walked in, had a billion-dollar debt, wrote a check. Everybody, I'm writing the check, I'm writing the check, I'm writing the check, I'm writing the check, puts it in. The problem was they only had a dollar in their bank account. The tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, walks in, billion-dollar debt, and says, I can't write that check. I need somebody else to write that check for me." And Jesus steps in and says, I'll write that check and I have on the cross. And so as you walk into this room, as you leave today, as you go throughout the week, my prayer for you is that you would walk in righteousness. That doesn't mean you would walk perfectly. That doesn't mean you would walk with it all together. That doesn't mean you would walk having all the things that God wants you to do doing it. No, it means to walk in the fact that you are accepted in Christ, that you would walk in the fact that you are approved in Christ. And when you have that security, then all the brokenness on the inside, you can actually share with others and say, man, I am falling short. Girl, I'm falling short. Can you pray for me? Can you encourage me? Because Jesus has paid it all. I want to live simply in response to Him, not to earn His love, but because of His love. How different would our lives be if we could walk with that level of acceptance from the one that ultimately can give it to us far more than our coworkers, our spouses, our friends, or our family? God looks at you and says, you are approved. You are loved. In your eyes, and He says, you have passed the test in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Got an unlikely story from 2,000 years ago. I know reveals to me so much that though I can get into the place of receiving Your love, God that achieving just keeps creeping back in. And so God, I know I need the reminder and I pray that You would remind us that this acceptance and love can only be received. May we open up our hearts and our minds and even in this moment as we reflect on what you want us to learn, who you want us to be, what you want us to do. As we hear this song, maybe we don't even sing along, God, but may these truths sink down deep into our heart. May it change how we live and how we love. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.